Newtown is a special African-American community. With special people. Most of the early arrivals came to Sarasota looking to better their lives. An indomitable spirit emerged out of their struggle, and a strong faith ushered them through many challenges. The Newtown Alive Project recorded oral history interviews to preserve community history and pride. I'm Vicki Oldham. I am so excited to be here and introducing another series of podcasts with my friend and my colleague, Edna Shirell. She is a journalist and writer, and we have so, so very much in common. Actually, we were roommates uh, as we were young career climbers. And she came up in a little, well, maybe not a little, because Gary, Indiana, was kind of a nice-sized town compared to Newtown, right? It's medium, yes. Yes, it's a medium city. And when I was growing up in the 70s, um, it was burgeoning, and it's very shortly after then, we saw that retraction as a lot of things happened uh, to the steel industry. Mm-hmm. So so we're going to talk about a nice amount of time when business was booming and when you know kids were growing up happy and healthy. And let's see the comparison. You know what, and I always remembered your Gary, Indiana stories, and I felt like, wow, it sounded a lot like Newtown, but, but then it sounded larger than, than what we had. Let's see, you know what, it, what you were probably hearing is that sense of community, because like you have uh, educators that people never forgot. We have names that if, if you went to Roosevelt High School, go felt. If you went to Roosevelt High School, there are, there are people who, who still laugh at what Madame Shell, the French teacher, would have said or not said. And Madame Shell knew generations of students. You would have heard people saying, I got this from Mr. Adams' store, or I went to the record shop and I got my last, um, you know, 45. There are places and people and things that are just kind of interwoven because it, it, was, it was a good time. It was a time of growth, and it was at the same time a very balanced life where we knew that a lot of good things were around us and we could become part of that good. And you were surrounded by a loving family, too. And we're going to talk about Mrs. Estella Moore Thomas because um, of her tight-knit family. Let's talk about her. Her family came to work the farming industry. They were migrant farmers, and they worked in turpentine. Well, I had never heard of Seidel. Neither had I heard of Verna, but you remembered a sign. Now, I've seen the sign that says Seidel. You would be traveling east of here. And um, to be honest, I think I've seen it one time, and it probably is in one spot, and that's not far from State Road 70. State Road 70 brings me to, I think, an understanding that the area that I thought was one of the furthermost, uh, easternmost points of Sarasota County uh, was the spot where migrant uh, workers would have come, where people who were working in turpentine 
would have would have landed. And like you, I had never heard of people working in turpentine, not until I, I, I got here. But looks like eastern Sarasota County, and we'd say eastern on the north end and then eastern on the southern end, that's where these camps were that people landed. And I'm fascinated by that. Do you know that, well, you might not know, my grandmother was friends with a public health nurse. And as a little girl, I remember them gathering little neighborhood children in Newtown together, and we would go and sing to the migrant workers and take gift baskets of fruit for the holidays and little gifts for, um, for migrants' families and um, make that a, a holiday party. Wow, wow, because those migrant families would be far from home, wherever home was, right? Mm-hmm. That is neat. I, uh, I guess showing children... Then what we show them now, taking things to a nursing home or taking things to the Salvation Army shelter. I, I love that you did not call, you didn't tell me about that years ago. Right. We can go to Mrs. Thomas now to hear about her growing up in that area. I am here with, what is your name? Estella Thomas. And her, her daughter? Harriet Moore. All right, Mrs. Thomas. Give me a little background about your your uh, family history and how they how you happened to be in Sarasota. My mother's family they were what you would call migrant workers. They worked on farms, going different places, working on farms and turpentine. My anchor, my anchor city. So that's where we were, and then from there we went to this place called Sidell, and then later my father passed away. My mother moved here to Sarasota, so that's why how I got to Sarasota. So um, what are your earliest uh, memories of uh, being here in the Sarasota area? Just kind of set it up for us. Well, I came here when I was 13 to live with my mom. Paint a picture of the area for those of us who did not live during your time. What did it look like? Well, we had... Dirt roads. We didn't have paved streets when you know when I came here. And this area was um, Newtown, Newtown. Or, it was in Newtown. Newtown. Okay. No paved streets. No paved streets. No roads. How did you know how to get from place to place? Well, it wasn't street signs or anything. Nothing but Thirty Third Street, and that was a dirt road back in my time. So what did you do? Just kind of build trails, <laughs> walking trails. Yes. Dirt streets in the 40s. You started working at a young age. Tell us about that. Well, I started working when I was 16. How did that come about? I didn't go through high school. Things happened between my mom and her sister coming along, baby. So then I uh, had, I just got frustrated and I just dropped out because when I, when I would go to school, I would be so far behind. So I, would, I just dropped out and I went to work at Morrison's. Marson's cafeteria. Yes, and you were you were had been helping your mom with, um, with the young. My, yes, and I was out of school quite a bit because she was doing she was working, and then uh, I wouldn't be out of school because back in that time it wasn't day nurseries and kindergartens and stuff like they have now. They didn't have that during that time. If mm-hmm. some person, some older person, didn't take care of the babies or whatnot. We had to, I had to stay home mm-hmm. and take care two, three days out of the week, and I just couldn't couldn't get no education doing that. So I said, well, I guess the best thing for me to do is go to work. 
Did you make that decision then? Yes. Others have said that they went to work at Morrison's too. That must have been a place that provided many jobs. Well, I was working in the kitchen. I was in the kitchen department. Were you cooking there? No. I was just working in there, getting the food ready for the cooks. And then they cook the food and take it out on the line. So set up a day. Set up what a normal, typical day um, was like for you. Well, I would go in about 10 and then get off about 2.30. Because when I get done with the, getting the food ready for the cooks, then I'm done. After you got off from work, then what? I would go home and be there. And wait on the next day. Life was pretty, pretty simple. The next day, yeah, pretty simple. You also married at a young age? Yes, I did. Tell us about how you met your, your husband. My first husband? First husband. Well, we grew up together out here in this place where I told you that uh, Sidell, about 50 miles from here. That's where I grew up. Turpentine. It was a turpentine camp, right? Mm-hmm. Turpentine camp. Who were some of the other families, Mom, that were out there? The Phillips. Reverend Phillips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From around here? Around Reverend Phillips, Phillips. the Bethel Missionary Baptist Church. My cousin. He's my yeah. cousin. Oh, okay. Great. The family, yeah, they were, they were <laughs> raised out there, too, inside out. How do you work in a turpentine camp? Like, what do you do? Do you the women? The women, uh, what the women did, you know, the pine straw that's around the trees, the women would, would rake around the trees, and then the men would come along and uh, cut, the, cut the pines, and they put a bucket down there, and the rosin would come down in there, and that's what made the turpentine. Very interesting. <laughs> it's turpentine. You didn't, uh, you didn't work in the turpentine camp, oh, though. No, I was too young for that. No. Okay. But you remembered seeing it. I remember. Yeah, because they still, that's where they made the turpentine. They made the turpentine out there. They actually produced it. They produced the turpentine. Manufactured it. That's what they did. <laughs> and some people said, Robert Taylor said that, Turpentine was used to treat a lot of um, illnesses. Yes, that's right. Do you remember that? As of today, turpentine is in the stores right now. Yeah. How did you all do? How did you all get medical treatment? Do you remember uh, going to the doctor or anything? Not really, because we were. Let's see. We was we were about twenty eight miles from Arcadia. So if we got sick or something, we had to go to Arcadia, and we didn't have vehicles and. Stuff like that. So it was pretty... Pretty rough. Pretty rough. Do you remember some of the home remedies that... Um, Let's use turpentine, castor oil, and Epsom salt. All that was home remedies. Cobwebs. <laughs> cobwebs. Cobwebs. If you get cut, you plug it up with cobwebs. You, you know, we had lamps. We didn't have electric electricity when I came here. The lamp was up on the refrigerator, and I opened the door, and the lamp fell and broke. And right there, just cut it to the bone. And then they filled it up with cobwebs. No stitches or nothing. And you're still here today to talk about it. You live. I lived through it. No doctors, but I lived through it. Okay, what what sort of other jobs did you you do besides Morrison? Uh, I worked in the laundry and dry cleaning. That's, that's when I, we started the business, because he was in the concrete, and her father was in the concrete, and I was in the laundry. Where was the laundry um, located? It was on, what street was Washington that? Boulevard. 
Yeah, that one. That way, uh, your grandmother worked. I, went, I was there for Bayview Laundry. Oh, yes. Bayview Laundry Cleaners, Dry Cleaners. That's where I started, then went from there to the one on uh, Main Street. What made you think to start a business? I just realized that uh, I wasn't getting anywhere. I wouldn't get, you know, I didn't have the education that I should have had, but uh, I just was going to try the business. How did that come about? You talked to your husband? Yes, we talked about it. We remodeled the Moore's Grocery there. Where's Moore's located? 301 and 27th Street. Can I interrupt for a moment? Mm -hmm. Because there were two businesses before that business. There was the store just east of the railroad tracks, across what we call across the tracks, right there on the corner of Leonard Reed. There was a building there. That was your first store. Yeah, that was before we. Yeah, but that was a rental store. So, but you weren't working at Tropical Cleaners anymore, and that wasn't. That was the starting point. The little, the little place across east of the uh, railroad track there. Oh, the Moore's was the third store. Oh. Mrs. Moore, you got... She, that's why I'm here. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, tell me more about the, the first um, stores. Well, the first one, we weren't there very long. Eddie Fruit Stand. Everybody know about Eddie's Fruit Stand. He came down one day and told me that uh, we could rent his place because he didn't want to do fruits and vegetables, and he just wanted to go out of business. So uh, we said, oh, yes. So he had a nice place there. So we moved down there in Eddie Fruit Stands building. And we were there nine years in his place before we came and got the money and remodeled the third one. Oh, okay. And tell me about the second one. That was Eddie's Fruit Stand. Oh, okay. That was Eddie's. We rented from him. Oh, okay. I can't wait for you to tell us about all the, the products that you had in the, in the Moore's Grocery. Wow. You name it, we had it. We had all kind of fruits and vegetables, just everything. Greens, you name it. We had fresh cheese and cracklings that you'd have to weigh, um, the two for a penny cookies that you had we to We had everything, everything. Moore's. Did the community have many options to go to? Did they have many choices of grocery stores? Not, that, not just a few. Because all these stores they got now, the Walmarts and the uh, all these 7-Elevens, they, they weren't here during the time that I started out. One of the things that, that's interesting to me is that, you know, you go into the places and you see the game rooms and all of that. Well, really, we had game rooms there. The first store um, that we were talking about across the railroad track, the one side was the store, the other side was a game room. And so when the kids would get off the school bus, I was real little. I was in pre-K or somewhere back there. <laughs> And the kids would get off the bus and they'd come in. We had a joke box in there. And they'd come in and shoot pool and play the music. And then they'd go on home. And when we rented Eddie's Food Stand, one side was a store and the other side was a little area where the kids would come in and they'd play records after school when they get off the bus on Persian and 27th. And they'd have pickles and pig feet and hot sausages and mm-hmm. hot dogs. Like Gloria used to have hot dogs mm-hmm. for them. And so they'd have hot dogs. And so I'd sneak out and, you know, go over to those sides so I can see what the teenagers were doing. <laughs> so when people see those things out there now, that's not new. That's something that we had in this community because... Really, we couldn't go to Publix and Winn-Dixie and all of that. We were not welcome in those places. So all of those businesses that were established on the corridor um, really, really um, sufficed for us as a community. And then you had the businesses over town, too. So Horns Grocery 
was over over town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were where the movie theater used to be over there. The bar? The bar, yes. So there were the gaslight or something like that. Uh-huh. Gaslight. Um, so there were, I mean, it was a flourishing um, community that was truly a community. That's what I grew up in. We didn't have newspapers. How did you get um, information? We had the black newspaper. The bulletin? The weekly, weekly bulletin. bulletin. And also word of mouth. I mean, everybody knew everybody, and mm-hmm. everybody knew. Even today, I still, I can look at faces and say, um, who, who are your parents? Um, and that's how everyone knew everyone, because of who the parents were. You could see the resemblance, the family resemblance. And I still do that today, and people still do it to me. Um, and, you know, and I just think that's, that's one of the unique, unique things about being in a great um, community such that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, it was I, close. It was tight. It was very tight. And, and my mom won't tell you these things, which is why I came along. But when they had Eddie's Fruit Stand, and probably the other store too, but I was too young to remember that. But I worked in all the stores at some point uh, behind the register or getting things or watching kids. But I, I, part of the story I told you about with the paper that I wrote was um, they were one of the few stores that gave credit to people. They had the spindle and they had the book. And the spindle was when people would come in and they may want a pack of cigarettes and they didn't have enough money. So they'd bring it up and they'd, and they'd have the receipt and then they'd write the person's name and they'd put it on the spindle, you know, 55 cents. So when they came in, they would pay it. The book was for people who wanted groceries and they would pay a portion of that grocery and then they'd mark off what they paid and, you know, and that said, or they add on or take off and they delete once they paid. Um, everybody didn't always pay, but that was okay too. And nobody went after anybody because, um, people had needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I loved being able to see that and watch that because they've always been, my mom and dad were very giving people. And, um, and we were also one of the few stores where when the migrant families would come in, see back then, migrant families looked like us. They weren't Spanish speaking people. They were African American people. And so they weren't allowed to go in any of the um, white-owned establishments like Publix and Winn-Dixie and all of that. So they had to come down on 27th Street. And so they would park this big, you know, old, rusty school bus out there. And all these kids would get off. And um, they'd have on tattered clothes, clothes that were too big for them. And they were really dusty. Um, They'd come in and we'd have to post up around the store because, you know, everybody wasn't going to pay for what they picked up. And so we just have to post out and just make sure that they didn't take too much. Uh, at least that was my mindset. They weren't supposed to take anything. But when the kids would get down in the candy, and I'd see them kind of putting a couple of things in their pocket. I probably never told you this one. Uh, but, you know, I kind of looked the other way so uh, they could get a treat or something to take with them. Not that I would condone stealing, but I knew that they didn't have the means to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those kind of things were etched in my mind. And then um, when we'd have Thanksgiving and things like that in the community, they would get together with the other business owners and make sure that the people who didn't have had Thanksgiving dinners and baskets and things that they would put together for the families in this community. Oh, in, inside in the community. community. Okay. This different store, all of the business was, businesses would get together and do that. And, um, and one of my fondest memories was when Santa Claus would come to uh, Eddie Fruit Stand and be on the back of my dad's big, big truck because he would get all the vegetables. All of our produce was fresh. And he would drive to the market at 3 o'clock in the morning in Tampa and get all the fresh produce, mangoes and um, apples that were this big. and I mean, just great fresh fruit. 
so at Christmas, um, Santa would come, and so we'd make bags of um, nuts, pecans, and pecans, and peanuts, and oranges, and candy canes, and I remember wrapping those bags, lots and lots of them, and uh, hanging outside the truck when they would go around the new town with a bullhorn saying, Santa Claus is at Morris Grove, Santa Claus is at his fruit stand, Santa Claus, and so, and it was Victor Johnson was Santa Claus. Um, and uh, he would sit on the back of the truck, and the kids would come up and sit on his knee, and they get it back. Yeah, no, she knows you know Victor. Yeah, I do. Just the coolest thing, and I, I just felt so special because um, I knew who Santa Claus was. But it was so moving for me to watch the. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, to watch that and um, and see the kids, you know, sitting up there, and those are the things that have impacted me. And um, just watching the giving. Um, in this community and the way that it used to be. And I miss that and I, I feel bad that, you know, my son and the kids in this generation don't really get to see that. No. Um, you know, if I did something wrong and somebody told me before I got home, they already knew about it. So those people disciplined me and I got disciplined when I got home. Um, so, you know, we're missing a lot of that, but I know she wouldn't tell you those things because mm -hmm. that's my perspective and mm -hmm. that's what I saw, what I know that they did. Um, and rallying around people who didn't have and making sure that nobody went hungry around here uh, because people That's knew good. when people had a need. That's good. That's, That's good. Right. So let me let me find out um, why you sold the business. My, my husband and I divorced. Mm -hmm. So the business went to me because she was in school at the time. She was in college. So I had the the, uh, the attorney gave me, my attorney gave me the, the business. Mm -hmm. So I was there. I was there a long time. I didn't sell it until uh, 1980, 87, 87. But see, it was, it was getting too hard for me. You know, I just got tired because mm -hmm. that was a seven day a week thing. And I just got tired. How late was it open? From 6 to 11. 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. Seven days a week. Education was important to you and making sure that your children were educated. Yes. Why? Because they, I wasn't educated. I wasn't educated. So I made sure that they were educated to get so they can make it in the world. Got to have education. I made it, but I didn't have the education. Let's turn to you now, Harriet. Uh, a principal. Talk about uh, your life and the, the children that you're seeing and the, I know that's two questions. <laughs> Let's start with those two questions. But I wanted to find out educational background. You went to Pineview. Yes. That took uh, something to get into Pineview. So how did that all come about? Oh, I was misbehaving. <laughs> um, started behaving. Yes, I was behaving. And um, I... Uh, was pretty busy, like I always am, and uh, but I was always an avid reader. I loved to read. Uh, couldn't wait to start reading. In fact, my sister couldn't wait for me to start reading because I was always asking her, how do you say this? My aunt still told me the story, and I think, oh, your sister was so glad when you could read because you were driving her crazy. At Bayhaven, I you know, was reading, and I'd get my work finished, and, and I want to talk, obviously. I'm a talker, uh, and I want to talk, and the other kids were not finished. And so I would get in trouble because I wanted to talk. I was finished with my work. Um, so I think they contacted my parents and said, "We, you know, there's a new school that's been developed, and we think that Harriet might be a fit for that. So then they did all the testing, which was another interesting story. But um, long story short, I, I did end up at Pineview. 
um, in fifth grade, started at fifth grade, and I graduated from Pineview, so I stuck it out for eight years, and uh, it was a very interesting experience for me. What was interesting? Tell me the stories <laughs> of Pineview. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, my friends from Pineview were all still very close, and um, it was, I think we all learned from each other. There were five of us at Pineview then, myself, um, Ben Mickens, Gerald Rogers, uh, Willie Bacon, and Toussaint Dupree. Ben and I were in the same class, Ben Mickens and I, and the others were older. You, uh, Professor Rogers' son, Gerald Rogers, mm-hmm. was who was there. Um, Willie Bacon, Toussaint Dupree. So slowly people left, and Tucson and I remained. Why do you think they left? Different reasons. People had different reasons for leaving. Um, I did not ask any of them, but they just it was different. You know, you're there, and you don't see anybody else that looks like you, very few. Uh, but I, you know, I, I was okay with it, because I had friends that looked different anyway, so it didn't matter to me. Except when there was a racist remark that was made by one of the teachers, and the whole, my whole class um, ganged up about that, and uh, he had ganged up on you on him. Oh, the teacher. Yeah, we grew. We we grew. What did he say? He said um, we were doing a piece on uh, civil rights movement, uh, and he got down in my face and said, "Don't all blacks carry switchblades?" And I sat back, and tears started running down my eyes, and I didn't know why he was asking me that, and my my classmates were very upset. Um, and we all got up and left the class. We were nine, nine, ten years old, and we walked out of the class and went to the office. And I'm in tears, and they're all supportive. And um, he had to write a very lengthy apology. You know, I stayed the course. And uh, there were other incidents, but I was just determined. I, I liked the education, um, and I enjoyed what I was doing. I still went over to the other schools, and I went home every day to my community. So for me, it was okay. It's just being able to balance it, and I think... Um, Having a good support system around you, which is what I had. Um, and even the kids, my sister's class were four years older and the older kids. They, they, I, was, I, was a stu- I was a kid they were proud of that I was there. And they made me feel good about being there. And, um, and so that was, that was great support from the community to stay there and stick it out. Mrs. Thomas talks about moving to Newtown and there were no paved streets at that time. Did you have paved streets in in Gary? All of them, <laughs> all of them. I was really surprised, and, and I'd say shocked, to to hear that or to read that Newtown streets weren't paved until 1968. I do wonder what happened or what finally prompted the city to to give what I would think would be just a basic service, but that's probably the big difference between um, a larger city and um, a smaller one. I did see unpaved roads in Mississippi. I saw red clay, and that wasn't unusual. There also were, especially downtown, paved roads just like you know um, I grew up around. I would venture to say, and I don't know if anybody talked about why what caused them to be paid, but this was a, uh, a little powerful bunch of activists. Mary Emma Jones, Neil Humphrey Sr. You figure it was during the beach desegregation time, 68, they started asserting their rights for equal access to beaches in uh, 1955. So 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That those names tell you that movement was coming and, and, and they likely said if this hasn't been done by X time, we're going to make a move. Mrs. Thomas talked about beginning to work at a young age and she just could not keep up with, with school. She started working at Morrison's Cafeteria, where a lot of people worked. And uh, it wasn't easy to get child care. I mean, there were, you know, that was kind of sketchy. Well, what, what's, um, I guess, sad, um, in, in a way sad from the, the knowledge that opportunity and education go together. Uh, if you can keep that education going, then you just have more opportunities. I, I noted, uh, she said, if there weren't uh, older people to keep the children, the younger girls had to had to step in. It is something that some families may even be going through now, strangely. We would call it strange, but more than once, especially during the, the pandemic, you saw that people were stepping into those roles again to make certain that childcare happened when there wasn't any other opportunity. I don't know if you know this, but the expectation back in the day from school district leaders was that African-Americans could only get an eighth grade education. You're expected to work the farming industry. So eighth grade was all one of the superintendents felt was needed. And Mrs. Booker, Emma E. Booker, pushed her students to get more. And that's probably one of the reasons that the Booker schools is just a golden legacy to people because that education opens up doors that without it people could not have walked through. Not a lot different from my grandfather and grandmother moving from Alabama during the Great Migration to Steel City to work in those um, to work in those steel mills. Third grade education was what you got because after third grade you were in the fields and it's surprising to me that so many decades later someone in Florida would say eighth grade is enough because those of us who love learning know that it's never enough. It's never enough. I love that Mrs. Booker saw the future for her students, students like John Buck O'Neill, and she opened up the door for him. He wanted to go on, but he just couldn't go on here in Sarasota. There was no opportunity for him. Sarasota High School was not going to open up the door. So Edward Waters in Jacksonville was uh, where he was able to go. And you know, if you didn't have the wherewithal to, to go, you just couldn't you do just, it. No. And, and, and working was certainly acceptable and honorable. Honorable. So, so you did what responsible people do. You go get a job. Exactly. Now, in addition to education being sketchy, medical services were sketchy too. Now, Mrs. Thomas worked turpentine, and she describes turpentine, but turpentine was one of those home remedies that kept people alive, and I don't know what it was in the solution that was the cure-all. But it was, right? <laughs> but it was. <laughs> I, I, I think everything natural, um, again, I have to go back to, have to go back to southern roots, have to go back to, to things that my mom said, alum, cobwebs, as, as Ms. Thomas said, the things that we could get our hands on 
that kept people well and alive. I love that they were smart enough to know, to be close enough to nature, to know this is what's going to make this okay, and then you can get back to work. That's amazing to me. Cobwebs and turpentine. Right. And castor oil. Right, and castor oil. <laughs> and these stories, they uh, dovetailed with each other because she described the cobwebs, turpentine, and cotton balls, and so did Robert L. Taylor. Didn't know that it stopped bleeding, those cobwebs, and I had the same question that you had. How did they gather up enough cobwebs to stuff in a wound to stop bleeding? Where do you find them, exactly? Where do you <laughs> Where do you find them? But you were living in the woods, spiders were spinning cobwebs. And, and they knew the lay of the land as well. They knew the lay of the land, so. You knew where to find them. You knew them. where to find them. She worked. Mrs. Mm -hmm. Thomas did. It looks like a, a laundromat. She had the presence of mind to realize, this is not getting me this anywhere. Smart woman, smart woman. And wanted to, and be, wanted to be an entrepreneur and yes. became one back in the day. Yeah. That's a necessity thing, but isn't it amazing that instead of her saying, I don't have a lot of education, I don't have a lot of opportunities, she looked at a need that could be met. Everybody eats. I'm going to do something that makes certain that everyone in my community has what they need. Yeah, I was really impressed with that. And uh, Moore's Grocery was an institution in our community, <laughs> an institution. Harriet was interviewed next to her mom, and she talks about, oh, just the knowing the community and the caring in the community. And they wanted the community to eat. And if people could not afford to eat, they offered credit. That is community. That is just community. Was there anything in that story of her having that grocery store that um, stood out in your mind, too? I, a couple of things. It, it, was, it wasn't a gathering place, but it was a spot that was a safe spot. I call it a safe space. As Harriet described what would happen after school, people would come over to, I guess, a section of the building, and there'd be um, a spot with games and things that kids coming off of the school buses could, could just feel comfortable with. So how, how cool is that to have the opportunity to maybe grab a snack or something, but also have a safe spot, maybe while you're waiting for your parents to get home, maybe just to socialize. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that it would have sounded like very much like something that is a game room now, something that you'd see at the mall or somewhere, but that type of need, the need to have a safe spot, the need to keep an eye on kids, and the need to have a feeding spot. It just is so neat. I, we just I, figured I it out. It. I guess organically, mm -hmm. as, as you often say, it just seemed like a spot. It makes me want to time travel. I really wish I could see Moore's Grocery during those days that, you know, there's a whole lot of buzz and kids are coming in and what do they do but greet Mrs. Thomas and, and just move into their spot. And how about this, too? Today, kids just want to be an entrepreneur and successful. But there were some steps. She didn't just own her building off the bat like that, just get a bank loan and own the building. She did rent a space first near Eddie's fruit stand. Tell me about Eddie's fruit stand before I... <laughs> I will tell you, I'd <laughs> gladly tell you about Eddie's fruit stand. I do remember traveling down 27th Street in my grandmother's station wagon, of course she would be driving, and all I remember is this 
produce, just just lush and all these brilliant, rich colors, the the reds of red uh, peppers and yellows and greens, oranges and greens, collard greens and turnip greens and whatever kind of greens <laughs> you, you want can it. think of, right? Just so much produce. And that is what's in my mind now, the colors of the, uh, of the produce that I saw as we passed in our car. So everything fresh, mm-hmm. everything there for sale. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that in, in many areas now, you still hear the term food desert. You still hear that, that there are people who cannot access fresh fruits and vegetables within a certain radius. So neat that these entrepreneurs... They were, they were meeting a need, and they were given the quality that they knew their neighborhood deserved. Mm-hmm. That part I love. The other note that you, that you mentioned, it's really interesting that Mrs. Thomas did not give up a dream because she didn't have everything that that, that dream seemed it required. She had her own business. She met the needs of the community, and she did what she needed to to get where she where she eventually ended up going. So uh, that's a good lesson for right now because everybody wants, uh, especially our young people, everybody wants it right now. They want everything immediately, and if it's not gotten immediately, they don't. Um, they maybe don't see the value of just working for it, or working towards it, or both. I don't think it can be overstated the fact that this was about community, people helping one another. Um, it was a tight-knit and small community. Was that what you experienced in your community of in Gary? Yes, I think that the small neighborhoods, uh, I grew up in what you call Midtown, and then the, there was Tolleston, which would have been West, so on and so forth. As I'm seeing it now, and it's really neat looking through these eyes because uh, I see why so many people still consider Gary home, and have such warm feelings, even though, you know, I've been away decades. We had that same kind of camaraderie where people knew enough about each other that they'd look out as in, you know, how you doing, speaking as you're going past. Um, The stores that we would pass as we traveled the arterial road, 25th Avenue, think of of 25th when when you think of Kingway. The convenience store, the the grocery store, the hair salon, the barbershop, the record store, and down near near another big street, a Coney Island. I would find out after years of passing this Coney Island that the owner was um, related to my family, long story short. But these were all people who said uh, at some point for, for some reason, hey, we could use a blank. Um, Think of being in a record shop in the 70s and knowing that, you know, in just three days, according to Jet Magazine, you know, Stevie Wonder's album was going to be out. And, you know, think of how cool it was. It, it, it probably was a really small spot as I'm thinking about it. Our record shop was probably, I don't know, 10 by 10. It was a very, it was a very, it was a small space packed with records you know, packed with albums on the walls, a counter where you could say what you needed. So that kind of small spot that was always, when I said was full, there was always someone coming and going. 
because they were always teenagers wanting to buy records. Those are the types of things that make me think that there was a closeness that I, I would not have had otherwise. I can't tell you what was happening maybe on the far west side of town or on the far north side of town, but each community seems like it operated in its own you know, little way. I you can't me let th- you um, end this, uh, this part of this conversation without mentioning uh, the Jackson 5 from what? Gary. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. And everybody should start every Gary conversation with some mention of the Jackson 5. So you have done that very well. I thank you. Uh, we grew up, this is so funny, we grew up seven blocks from the Jackson home. Now, can't get excited because by the time we were uh, meandering on our own, by the time we got to to go to our friends and go other places and walk to the record store, they had moved. They were already in Encino. Uh, but uh, the Jacksons lived, um, uh, our streets are named for presidents. So Washington, Adams, Jefferson, blah, blah, blah. So they happened to live on Jackson Street, not named for them at the time. And we lived on Van Buren. So, um, you know, six blocks and you're right in front of their, of their home. My, my cousin, uh, Joanna Mariner, was a teacher uh, of, of, of two of them. She taught English and journalism. So she, she had that claim to fame of having taught the older Jacksons. Um, everyone talked about them. Everyone knew where they would have lived. Everyone knows um, Johnny Ray, Tex, and Scooter because they're all mentioned in the Going Back to Indiana song. <laughs> And T.W. Brown. Uh, but those were people who um, had, to us, passed through. They, Yes, they were famous, but they didn't make Gary Gary. Gary was wonderful on its own. Gary was honestly wonderful on its own. We did go to the first Jackson 5 concert, Westside High School Auditorium, but we were, we were very aware that there were many wonderful things about Gary, Indiana. Is there something about Gary that would make you tear up, though, like, Harriet did in talking about the community of Newtown. She teared up because she remembered this time and maybe she projected where it is now and thought, gosh, it's gone and we might not be able to reclaim it. And that's what made her get misty. Wow, you you just gave me a wave of emotion. So much has changed everywhere, but in the case of Gary, as I've mentioned, by the 80s, the steel mills were responding uh, economically to the recession and the, the crack epidemic and things going on that made businesses start moving. And when your businesses start moving, then, you know, then people soon follow. So as I look at Gary now, I can see Douglas Elementary School. I live right across the street from it. And I see so many buildings that we gathered there. We had a great time. There was only fun. There was just only fun and only love and this real sense of safety. The baseball field is closed. It likely isn't coming back. The movie theaters where you could go for about 75 cents and, you know, spend a whole afternoon downtown, gone. So I speak of Gary in nostalgic terms, knowing that when I go back home to visit, none of those things I've mentioned are there. Roosevelt High School stands, um, but it stands as an empty building. It is no, it is not currently in use, and those are the things that make you go, what, what could have happened? And at the same time, you can never erase memories. Ah, oh, yeah. Newtown is changing, and there is a fear of uh, gentrification 
uh, happening here. And I share with guests on the trolley tour what has been shared with me. People say that Newtown won't be gentrified because the residents won't allow it. But I, I don't know how I feel about that because when big money comes in, how can you stop it? I don't know. How can you stop it? And what, the questions that, that I often had, as I heard people, Fred Jackson with the Bulletin and um, Fred Atkins and many other people who can give you the history, Jetson Grimes, what happened to Cannes and Mr. Humphrey's shop and Bud's Barbershop, what are the things that happened that that changed that landscape. And that's what gives me, it gives me pause when I hear, oh no, something couldn't happen. Because what happened throughout the decades that made these businesses um, no longer existed or maybe... Integration uh, happened and people had options. And Newtown residents were interested in the options. And so they wanted to see what else, what else can we buy? And as Walter Gilbert shares, it didn't go both ways. We patronized white businesses outside the community because we could not, but white businesses did not come into our community to um, buy from our shops. And so just the combination of integration and um, drugs, and then with drugs, the uh, crime level went up. For you, the steel um, industry changed. Correct. Correct. And as I mentioned, as the steel industry changed, people, A, lost jobs, but B, some of that fear of things going bad uh, funneled. The funneled movement, uh, drugs had started moving in, you know, rapidly. And of all of the places in the world, I would have thought that Gary could have could have held together because we we felt so strong as children. But then, lots of things happen in this thing called life that uh, shift things. Exactly. Now, I want to um, end with Mrs. Thomas talking about how she did not get an education, but she made sure, darn sure, that her kids got the education that, um, that she did not. So we can talk about that and the fact that Harriet came back. A lot of times when we get educated, or, and our kids, Newtown kids, and in any community go uh, off to college, they do not come back because they can't get the right jobs here to pay. I mean, I just gave a big sigh because I, I am in that category. As much as I loved growing up in Gary, I came to Florida not looking for a specific career, but I, I could have gone back you know, 10 years after having some fun. Um, but, you know, in that 10 years, you become a part of a community or you start a family. And there are lots of reasons why your educated, you know, children end up not coming back. Uh, excellent note that with, with Dr. Moore coming back to her hometown because of those great opportunities that her mom had set her up for. It shifts some things in that, if nothing else, the children who are being educated here now the kids that are right here in Sarasota, in Newtown, they get to see faces and see titles and understand how much they can do. And if we're really fortunate, they come back and they make it happen in their way, in their generation, in their time. And I've got to say this before we totally wrap it up. Congratulations on your being one of those educators in a Booker School school. that was recently honored and that is pouring into those high school students. I'm very proud of you. Talk about your honor. Uh, Well, thank you. And I first, I'm honored to be a Booker teacher because I've heard through the years people just 
love their book of teachers. And uh, I know what I stepped into, if you will, it's a wonderful legacy. Uh, I am one of 25 teachers in Sarasota County, I'm selected for a TIME fellowship, thanks to the Charles and Marjorie Baransic Foundation. Time is investing in Marjorie's educators. We are the pilot uh, people who were graced with the opportunity to think of anything that you'd want to do that would revitalize you and refresh you after these really tough years of teaching. The last couple have been harder than the last probably, you know, 20. And uh, I think teachers love what they do and they do what they love. But there's nothing like someone saying, we know that you need a break, and and we'll give you that break. So I am one of 25. I am going on a soul connection with a fellow educator, Miss Jasmine Prasad, and we're heading to Africa. We're going to look at some places that are close to our bloodlines and see Cape Town and Mozambique and Zimbabwe and uh, see some schools on the way, but really just recharge our batteries to come back and tell our kids how many wonderful things there are in this world that they can take advantage of. So thank you. Thank you, Baransic Foundation. Thank you, Vicki, for mentioning. Whew, I feel... <laughs> I'm hyped. I'm just hyped. <laughs> you Funding for this program was provided through a grant from the Division of Historical Resources at the Florida Department of State. Visit NewtownAlive.org for more information on this episode and other projects.